0: Hey everyone, so this isn't going to be your typical first year's podcast episode, so this one's actually a little different. Um, My friends at Creating Magic Podcast and I got together for a Harry Potter event to talk about Dementors, Patronuses, and mental health. It was for an event run by a bar named Scum and Villainy for Harry Potter's birthday at the end of July. So this is the recording of that panel. It was a live stream event that was run on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. This episode is not spoiler free. So if you have not read all of the books, please do not listen to this episode because we talk about things that relate to the entire series. So if you do not want to get spoiled, just skip this episode and I will see you guys in the next episode. If you're already an established Harry Potter fan, I would encourage you to keep listening. I think it's a really interesting discussion. And I will see you guys next week for our regularly scheduled spoiler-free episode. Okay, hey everyone. Uh, Thanks for joining us for this panel. And thank you to Scum and Villainy for having us. So we are three different podcasters from two different podcasts. So my name is Sarah Jones-Dittmeier. I am uh, the host of a podcast called First Years, which is a literary guide to, for adults who are reading the Harry Potter series for the first time.
1: And I am Danny. I am one of the co-hosts of the Creating Magic podcast. We are a podcast where we pretty much discuss and have conversations with individuals throughout the Harry Potter community and those that like to create things.
2: Yeah, and I am the other half of Creating Magic podcast. Might I add the wittier and funnier half of the Creating Magic podcast, Stephen Hatterer. All of my adoring fans out there most likely know me as the Muggle and Khakis.
0: Um, So we're going to be talking about uh, Dementors and Patronuses and mental health within the Harry Potter series. So you guys are actually the ones who came up with this brilliant idea. So do you guys want to start us off?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And being the person within Creative Magic Podcast who did not come up with this idea, I will gladly speak first. Yeah, I, I think the Dementors have come to represent, among many themes, in my opinion, throughout the Harry Potter series. You know, a portion of of mental wellness, and in the Dementors' case, depression. Um, I, I certainly think there are lots of there's lots of other examples where you could point to kind of symbolism or or lessons or things like that about how to adopt, you know, better mental well-being into your life. But I I think of all of the various ways that JK Rowling has written about kind of the struggle with depression and mental illness throughout Harry Potter, uh, the Dementors are the most prevalent, commonly adopted across the fandom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, credit to you, Sarah, because you came up with a lot of the material I'm about to read through a little bit here. Um, But, you know, J.K.R. said at one point, you know, talking about Dementors and Depression, that there are these, and I'm quoting, like, cold absence of feeling beings that, you know, that really hollowed out feeling. Um, And I think that's something that from the jump, when Dementors are introduced into the series, we get, right? Um, You know, when when Harry's on the train and all of a sudden, I mean, in my mind, I'm kind of jumping between the visuals that you get at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter when you're on the Hogwarts Express, um, as well as, of course, my my original impressions from the book and the movies, but you know, they they quite literally suck all of the color and all of the life and, and uh, all of the happiness and joy out of any any scene. Um, and so Did I, you, I, I yeah. go ahead, yeah.
0: Oh no, I was going to say I do have the passage where we first meet them in this Prisoner of Azkaban. Um So it says, standing in the doorway, illuminated by the shivering flames in Lupin's hand, was a cloaked figure that towered to the ceiling. Its face was completely hidden beneath its hood. Harry's eyes darted downward, and what he saw made his stomach contract. There was a hand protruding from the cloak, and it was glistening, grayish, slimy-looking, and scabbed, like something dead that had decayed in water. But it was visible for only a split second, as though the creature beneath the cloak sensed Harry's gaze. The hand was suddenly withdrawn into the folds of its black cloak. And then the thing beneath the hood, whatever it was, drew a long, slow, rattling breath, as though it were trying to suck something more than air from its surroundings. An intense cold swept over them all. Harry felt his own breath catch in his chest. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. Harry's eyes rolled up into his head. He couldn't see. He was drowning in cold.
1: Ooh.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, look, as someone who... And I've talked about this fairly openly, so this should not be a shock to any of my thousands of fans out there. right? But as someone who, who struggles and continues to struggle with mental illness, that hits home. I mean... You know that that is some strong visual imagery and and symbolism there. Um, I'm I'm curious. I know Sarah, you've done a fair bit of I'll I'll call it research. You might be a little too humble to call it that, but I'll call it research um, into the origins of Dementors and all that. I'm curious if you came across anything where J.K. Rowling has equated her writing of Dementors to her own kind of struggle that she had pre-potter and kind of her world before the harry potter series became a reality
0: yeah so i know she did talk about how i'm pretty sure it was the death of her mother was sort of like a triggering point where she did fall into a depression um and that's where she talks about it's that hollow feeling and that's what the dementors relate to And one of the things that I did find interesting that she said was that Dementors aren't sadness because sadness is still a feeling. And it's the lack of feeling that comes along with the the depression, that like numbness, that hollowness, um, that's what the Dementors actually represent. And I found that interesting because we see that the way to protect yourself from a Dementor is with a Patronus, which I think we can say represents happiness, but I wouldn't necessarily say that happiness is really the only solution to depression. I think any type of feeling, even if it is sadness, um, because you want to feel the feelings, you don't want to just like not feel. Um, So I would say just like any type of feeling would be sort of the best way to combat that and be the opposite of what a Dementor represents, but we only see the Patronuses, which are, um, represent like you need a very happy memory, is the only solution that we find to combat them. But one of the other things that I thought about was, JK Rowling does say that Patronuses are very difficult to produce and most wizards cannot produce them. So, what does that say in regards to the wizarding world if most people cannot produce this charm
2: yeah you kind of stole my question there um sorry I, I, no do please don't apologize. it's not like i had it written down anywhere this was just my like million dollar question i was so excited to pivot on <laughs> which is you know what does it mean to be able to produce a patronus um and you know thinking through kind of what you said towards the back end of your of your response there sarah I think of a couple different things, right? Like there's when Harry's going through his training with professor Lupin and he's trying all these different memories that qualify as quote unquote happy, right? Some aren't enough and and they're not enough. And it's not until he gets to feelings of not just happiness, but, but, you know, acceptance, belonging and happiness with others where he's able to, to finally, uh, to, to quote one of our other favorite podcasts, binge mode, produce a full, um, and then the other thing I thought about was, you know, to, to your question of what does it mean that so few people can? Again, I I come to this concept of kind of allyship, if that's even a word, you know, thinking about at in um in Deathly Hallows when he's impersonating Runcorn, and he's the only one who's producing a patronus to save all of these um. These half bloods, right, that are, that are, or, or muggle borns who are there at the measure for questioning, but they're all shielded by him and they're protected by him and they're all benefiting from it. So I don't know what that means. So Danny, Sarah, I'll throw it out there, but that's kind of where my mind went.
1: Do you think that maybe it's not necessarily happiness, but hope in a way? Whereas like Harry has hope that they will escape and that gives him the ability to do that and to protect those people because he has something that he believes in and hopes for and hopes for a certain outcome. And that some people, although they might have those moments of happiness, they may not see the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: I think that's a really good point. And I think that also, cause one of my questions was gonna be, we see that Lupin is able to produce a Patronus when we first meet him on the train. And he is someone who ha- is always discriminated against um, in the wizarding world. He can barely hold down a job. He's lost all of his friends. He thinks one of his best friends betrayed them all and you know was culpable for the death of two of his other friends. And yet he's still able to produce a Patronus. And so I do wonder if maybe, if it's that hope also that maybe he has so
2: let's play a thought exercise out here. If, if a Patronus does represent a form of hope, right. And a, and a sense of optimism amongst everything else. Do we think that Lupin was able to produce a Patronus before that moment on the Hogwarts? I mean, that's certainly when he was younger, but in the moments of his adulthood, after James and Lily died and Sirius went to prison and all that, right. Up until that moment on the Hogwarts express, because I would argue, you know, getting a job back at Hogwarts where he's able to recapture some of his happiness in his youth and then having Harry right there, right? That probably sparks, that probably, you know, flicks that, that switch. It's that, it's that Jedi, you know, the Force moment where he's able to, to all of a sudden feel it again. And so the thought, you know, was he able to, to, to have this magical capability before or, or was this something that, you know, flickered into being once he finally felt that hope again?
0: That's a really good point, especially because this is also the first time he's seeing Harry, pretty, probably since James and Lily died. So,
2: and, and again, all credit to you, Sarah. Um, for anyone who listens to our podcast, or if you're about to subscribe and listen to episode one after this, please do. Um, certainly I am far from the intellectual of the group here. Um, so Sarah came up with a lot of these great questions that I'm just kind of cribbing. What does it mean that Harry is one of the few who possesses this kind of innate ability? Certainly he has to practice at it and we see that, but, you know, we also see a lot of other people practice and not really get there. And, you know, what does it mean that this young, at that point in his life, pretty unskilled and untrained wizard, what does it mean that he's able to, like, you know, how, how does, again, if we're playing out this, this theme of not just happiness, but hope, what does that all mean?
0: I think with Harry, I, you know, it's interesting because you're right. He doesn't come from a wizarding family. He's not necessarily, like, I feel like the only things we really see him be naturally talented at are Quidditch and producing a patronus charm, um, which shouldn't even be doable for a 13 year old boy. Um, but I think There's a certain aspect of determination, I think, that goes along with Harry because he does realize that the Dementors affect him more than they do other people. And I think there's part of him that really wants to conquer that. But very similar to to Lupin, I would say, Harry, you know, didn't have a very good life growing up. It wasn't really until he found out that he was a wizard and was able to go to Hogwarts that he found a place where he actually belonged and he had friends. And I think, you know, if we keep going along with that aspect of hope, you know, I think that was a hopeful thing for Harry where he he finally found his place and where he belongs. And maybe that comes into play because now Harry is, you know, especially in book three, he's growing up, you know, he, book three is definitely different, a uh, different read than books one and two. And so I think Harry's coming into his power a little bit in book three. And I think that might also have something to do with it.
2: Danny, I'm curious what what is your take on professor snape being able to produce a patronus right because for all of the same reasons why I find it fascinating that this very young child who again as we've established here is fairly untrained right like by any uh, you know objective standard should not be able to produce this level of magic is able to with astounding competence, I find it equally kind of fascinating and, and 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 worth thinking through how Professor Snape is able to, given everything we know about his character, both personality, life story, background, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do you feel
1: about all that? It may be because his is the doe, which represents Lily and
2: mm, Lily. That's my my really bad uh, Puffs uh, interpretation Of Professor's name So
1: So It might just be something That It's Even like how Sarah said it's that sense of Belonging is that his friendship With Willie Although did not turn out How he wanted it to Gave him a sense of belonging And it gave him a safe space, although it didn't end the best way, but his memories of Lily are still very strong and have that, like, they're like, we all have those memories that when we think of them, we think of like home, like that's where we fit in, where we belong. And even if all this bad stuff and negative stuff and just being not the greatest human, you still have those moments, and it's those moments that probably allow him to still produce a Patronus.
0: And that's something that, you know, because J.K. Rowling says that Snape's the only Death Eater that can produce a Patronus, and I've always found that odd, because I feel like even with all of these people that are evil and, you know, want to kill a percentage of the Wizarding World population, like, they still have, you know, take the Malfoys, for example. Like, they still have families. They have children. Like, you can't tell me that they don't have some kind of happy memory that would be able to produce a Patronus for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe not Rodolphus Lestrange, because I feel like <laughs> yeah. uh, Bellatrix has just absolutely <laughs> sucked the soul out of that man, and there's just no happiness left. And, but but I'm, I'm with you, you know, in, in theory on the rest of them. Yeah, it, it, it's bizarre. That, that's my hang-up is, again, you know, I, I think everything's about perspective. I mean, I think we all can agree that the, the purpose and mission of the death Eaters is just horrifying and bad. But from their perspective, right, they're fighting for the noble cause. So why wouldn't that? Why would they be devoid of any form of optimism, hope, but et cetera?
1: With that, does it go back to the fact that it's not necessarily that they can't do it, but they've never needed to? So they have never tried.
0: Mm. That's true. I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, so I did find that, like, J.K. Rowling said that Death Eaters probably wouldn't need to use Patronuses because they are used against creatures that the Death Eaters would usually fight alongside, but then what does that say about Death Eaters then, that they can just, like, be around mentors without issue or without needing that sort of protection? Like, how does that compare to like everybody else's experience that we've seen in the books with Dementors?
2: Doesn't compare favorably. I'll tell you that much. Ooh.
0: Yeah. And also, yeah.
2: No, no, I, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was going to ask another question. So if you wanted to, okay.
2: I, w- I was going to pivot. I was going to flip this on its head and pivot. So go ahead
0: now. <laughs> Well, so I was going to ask one of the things that I was thinking of while I was thinking about this topic is also, like, what does it say about the wizarding world, but also, you know, our overarching discussion here with the fact that why are Dementors introduced in book three? Like, why is it, like, at 13, um, this is when Harry meets this creature? And also, going along with that, why is it okay? Like, why, I'm assuming the Ministry okayed this, why is it okay for the Dementors to come on the Hogwarts Express and come face-to-face with these children without any sort of protection or warning or guidance? Like, if Lupin hadn't been in the carriage with Harry, like, what would have happened?
2: I am so excited, probably isn't the right word, to be talking about, like, depression amongst children, but I'm so excited that this is where you went because this is the question I was going to ask, which is... Mm -hmm. Let's flip it, right? And if we can't, if we agree that saying that a Patronus represents happiness is too simplistic of a view, we want it a little more nuanced. Let's flip it on its head and say, if Dementors, we can't say Dementors represent depression. Let's try to take it a step more nuanced. What does it mean that? I agree, taking everything you said, but that step further. What does it mean that Dumbledore is so adamant that these Dementors can't get into the school? Right. And, and the school is this sanctuary and it, and it's, and it's this, it's this haven, right. It's this, it's this oasis that is devoid of Dementors. Yeah. I, I, I think that all, I think that all ties in. I think, you know, I've been thinking about this person a lot in my life. I've, I've started a new job where I feel for the first time, like I'm not necessarily kind of like, like the assistant person there, but rather the person people are looking to. And the sense there is like, it's for the first time, I feel like I have a real sense of accountability. And for me, I think the the parables, like I, I think your first year and your second year, you're 11, you're 12, right? You're still very much a kid. Not to say you're not a kid at 13, but as far as I recall, um, when I was 13, that was kind of that first kind of kind of moments where you had some real kind of inklings of the world, right? Like you weren't just this kid completely shielded and, 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 the world wasn't fed to you by, by your parents or your caregivers or adults. That was when you first started to have your own real sentience in terms of what lied beyond your own kind of spectrum and, and, and worldview. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's where my mind went.
1: Well, it's also like an age where you start making decisions. Now they might not be hefty decisions, but like when you turn 13 in school, you started to get to pick what classes you got. It might've been as simple as what language I'm taking, but like you started to make some decisions that affected you completely and that put you on certain paths. Like it wasn't like, what am I eating for breakfast? Like they're not hefty decisions because you're still 13, but you're starting to make decisions that are founding who you are as an individual and you're really stepping into- Discovering yourself. I yeah, and two things going along with that. I think
0: we definitely see that at the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. You know, we see Harry start to negotiate his position within the Dursley household, where you know our Aunt Marge comes to stay, and Harry's like, "Wait, I need this permission slip signed. So you know what? If you want me to remember all of the lies that you need me to tell to cover everything, then we're gonna make a deal, and you're gonna sign this at the end of it, and." That's also when we see Harry, at the end of that, decide, you know what, I just need to get out of here. I'll figure it out, I just need to leave, I need to get out of here. So we're seeing him sort of begin to embrace his own autonomy and make his own decisions, like you were saying. But also, going along with what we were saying about hope earlier, um, I think Dumbledore has always been a sense of hope for Hogwarts. You know, Dumbledore brings this hope and this safety when it comes to Hogwarts, you know, where it's like there's no safer place because, you know, Voldemort was always frightened of Dumbledore. And Dumbledore also, in a way, I think protects other people. You know, like we see him, yes, protecting the kids by making sure that, you know, finally giving them the warning about Dementors (laughs) once they get to the school, making sure that, you know, they don't come into the school. But also we see Dumbledore be the one to give Lupin a job we also see Dumbledore be the one to, you know, make sure that Hagrid could stay at Hogwarts after he was expelled.
2: Yeah. One of the scenes that we never get in the books that I would just pay so much money for JKR to write instead of everything else she's been doing, uh, is a staff meeting at Hogwarts. Like I would love to see like Minerva sit down and be like, you never thought it was a good idea to warn the the students and the families about these Dementors being around and for him to be like, Oh, Minerva, to be young and to have folly. Right. I would just, I would kill for a good staff meeting. Um,
0: I would agree, especially during Chamber of Secrets as well.
2: Oh, I mean, look, you could close your eyes and just point to a random page in any of these books. And there's something in there that could be discussed with humor and controversy at a Hogwarts staff meeting for sure. Um. So I'm curious because I am an avid listener of your podcast, First Year's Pod, an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing listen for anyone who wants to get a little geeky um, with their Harry Potter.
1: Thank
2: you. you, I know you to be an avid scholar of of history and context and and how it all ties into what we're reading on, on the page. I'm curious what else you found about Dementors and maybe where JKR is drawing them from in historical uh, context.
0: You know me so well. (laughs) So, okay, so I actually had some trouble um, finding what Dementors necessarily were based off of, Um, but someone um, online pointed me in the direction in a group conversation that I was reading um, to the Striga, which is part of Albanian mythology and folklore, um, which you see at one point in The Witcher series on Netflix, um, but this one's a little bit different. So, it's actually a vampiric witch, um, it tends to be a woman with pale eyes and a hateful stare. They usually live in, like, the forest and they have supernatural powers, um, and they tend to suck the blood of infants at night while they sleep, and then they turn into a flying insect of some kind, like a bee or a moth or something like that. Um, people are supposed to avoid looking at them directly because they have the evil eye. Um, but when you look at, there were two really cool, um, illustrations of Astriga that I saw, and it did look like a Dementor, like hovering over somebody's bed and like sucking the soul out of somebody. Um, And so the ways they're supposed to be warded off can be like with salt and chanting, garlic. Um, They can be trapped within a church and then sort of um, caught and exercised when they try to leave it. Holy water, you know, tends to always be a standard against... (laughs) (laughs) whatever kind of spirit. Um, but also reciting verses from the Quran was also, um, used against, thought to be used against them. Um, but another thing that sort of relates to Striga, um, and especially with the visual that we see of Dementors in Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie, um, they look like ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings. Um, and so, that led me to look up wraiths specifically. And I think there's almost an overlap as well between the two because in Lord of the Rings, the wraiths are only after one thing. They just want the ring. And I would say that Dementors are also after one thing. They want your happy memories and they want your soul. <laughs> um, but when we actually look at wraiths, it um, usually means it's a Scottish term for ghost. And when we think about ghosts, we think about, like, they haunt places, right? They haunt places, they haunt people, and that image very much evokes um, depression to me, where it it hangs around, it, you know, can be, like, attached to people or places. Um, So I think with ghosts and, like, with Shriga, this, like, draining of, of people um, I think is a common theme between the two, um, as well as this like, you know, almost never ending kind of presence that they have. I'm
2: gonna forego trying to have any sort of value additive comment because I, think that was wonderful I guess my only question would be when you're doing your podcast right and you're looking up blood sucking insects converting folklore and all that do you, do you just have like the worst nightmares
0: you know not yet but I as I was like looking over my notes for this I did sort of get a creepy feeling and I was like oh
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I can't imagine uh good for you no yeah I, look I, again I'm far from the intellectual of the group, but um, it all tracks for me. Like that all makes sense. A little bummed out that you can trap them in a church or you can read the Quran at them, but me and my (laughs) fellow Jews are screwed. Um, But you know, I guess whatever we've been screwed for history. So I guess it fits into this folklore.
1: (laughs) So we also like this as a plug that Steven should read Lord of the Rings. Oh my goodness, wait, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> if
0: you haven't read Lord of the Rings yet.
2: Look, I just got through the Star Wars movies, so we're, we're, we're making progress.
0: Okay, good. But okay, so um, before I get completely off track... You're welcome. <laughs> um, okay, so going along with the mentors and this presence that they have, also what is it like? what does it say, again, about the Wizarding World, that these are the guards of... Prisoners and prisoners in Azkaban literally have no escape from these creatures. They are stuck in their cells with Dementors, just like hanging around.
2: Well, I remember again. I so much of our podcast is just a poor facsimile of binge mode, Um, but I remember there was one binge mode um, segment where Jason Concepcion went into the history of Dementors, kind of within the canonical universe of, of the Wizarding world. And, you know, the island of Azkaban is, is this island that used to be inhabited by some, oh, I forget his name, Danny, that's going to kill me. I should have done more research before we started recording this thing. But the, this horribly evil wizard who, who to me, in modern days, seemed to kind of like that evil, reclusive billionaire that we love to kind of, you know, make up. Or not really make up, they exist. But, you know, that, that kind of caricature. And when the ministry or whomever it was, I forget, finally banished this guy and, and took over his island, the Dementors were like the one thing that they kept. Everything else apparently was so egregiously evil that they got rid of it, you know, whatever. And the Dementors, they kind of just constrained to this island, confined to this island, and, and they were what was left. Um, which is its own kind of thought of what, what the hell else was on that island and, and all of that. Um, yeah, I don't love, I don't love kind of that this is the tool of, well, it's certainly not justice, but this is the, the, these are the people who, People. these are the things that are guarding prisoners. Like this is kind of what we're subjecting other humans to. Uh, that's not really, not really a, a metaphor that I'm okay with. I guess it makes sense, again, thinking about the context during which these were written kind of the society, right, and the culture that we live in, unfortunately. but. Yeah, that's, that's dark.
0: Yeah. And like, one of the things I was thinking of that's also in connection to, you know, these Dementors are, you know, in close contact with these children. Um, One of the things I thought of, especially going along with, with the fact that most wizards cannot produce Patronus It also seems to relate to the fact, you know, that's become very obvious recently with the with the fact that most of our schools do not have psychological support for students. You know, I don't even know if Patronuses are taught at any sort of level at Hogwarts or not. But, you know, we're seeing, yeah, Dementors can come on the train. We're not gonna warn anybody. You know, we're certainly not going to have, you know, any support for anybody who had a bad experience at, you know, getting off the train, you know, besides the fact that Harry fainted.
2: Yeah, there's no way that Dementors are taught. I mean, never mind the fact that the the teaching standards at Hogwarts very much fluctuate depending on who was teaching the class, because there's no really set curriculum. But considering that in the wizarding world, in its quote unquote ideal state, at least per what you know, we see as the ideal state under Fudge, right? The Dementors exist solely as prison guards. Like they're not something that anyone's supposed to interact with other than prisoners. So if they were taught at Hogwarts, they wouldn't be taught in like a defense against the dark arts, practical defense way. They would be taught in history of magic as like a, like a little, you know, page of a textbook. Um, So, yeah, if not for Harry and Professor Lupin, there is no practical training against Dementors that Hogwarts would ever experience.
1: Yeah, I don't see them being taught at Hogwarts. Maybe, like, if you go in the track to be an Auror, like, I feel like that would be there somewhere. But I don't see it happening, actually, at Hogwarts. Right,
0: so then, like, so the circumstances in which the Dementors are brought to Hogwarts is that Sirius Black is. broken out of Azkaban. Um, and they're trying to find him, but then like Harry doesn't find out about this until like they get to Hogwarts. Like no one was notified. Okay. This is what's going to happen at school this year because of the circumstances. And this is how it's going to affect daily life at school.
2: Achrides, Achrides was the name of the evil wizard who is responsible for the creation of Dementors. I should have remembered that one because it's just <laughs> such a bizarre name. Um, yeah. It, again, to the same point of I'd love to see a Hogwarts staff meeting. I would love to see like a post mortem in like the Ministry. Like, oh well, that didn't go as we planned because it's just like again, society as a whole, assuming if we if we kind of bear out and play out the, there is no education at Hogwarts about Dementors unless it's in a historical context. Think about all the Hogsmeade shop owners, right, who are now having Dementors flooding their streets. Unless you're Aberforth, who just happens to be the brother of the guy who knows everything about hope and light and Dementors, you have no way to to protect yourself, combat this. Um, but you know, Scrum and Villainy. I, as appreciative I, as I am of of this time that we have, you don't want me to go on my governance and capitalism in the wizarding world rant because um, we That's would be another panel. <laughs> so I, I, that that's more than a panel. That's a whole like you know thesis. That's semif- a course.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that is a semester-long course. You can sign up for it later on. I'm definitely. Yeah, you
2: can sign up by following Muggle and Khakis, and uh, I'll DM you the course for four installments of thirteen galleons. Yes. <laughs> So I'm curious, one question I had, Danny, we can start with you, is what is your patronus and what do you know about it? What does it mean? How do you feel about it? Do you feel it's representative of you, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Do we go with the patronus that I was assigned or the one that I chose?
2: We go with whatever you'd like to answer with.
1: I was assigned an osprey, which I don't think is not valid, but I chose a red panda because they're my favorite. I, okay, I remember you saying that on
0: the podcast and I was like, oh my God, how is her Patronus a red
1: panda? Because I chose it. That's like such a good Patronus. I love red pandas. They make me happy. When I lived in Oklahoma, I would regularly stop by the zoo to see them. It was pretty much my main course was to end up Watching the red pandas for an extended period of time.
2: <laughs> and when you lived in Oklahoma and you went to a zoo, can you specify which zoo that was? Because I would like to imagine it was the Greater Winwood Exotic Animal Park, AKA the home of Joe Exotic and his tigers. Oh, no,
1: it was not. Oh, okay. It was the Oklahoma City Zoo, which is a great zoo and actually one of the top 10 in the country. Thank you very much.
2: Is the Greater Winwood Exotic Animal Park also one of the top 10 in the country? No. Oh, okay
1: never okay and never go there oh my goodness
2: um well i have no way to transition out of that eloquently (laughs) sarah what is your patronus and and what what how do you feel about it
0: um so my patronus is a tortoiseshell cat um which i think is very fitting (laughs) it makes a lot of sense um It's interesting because, you know, I think with Patronus, as I was looking into it a little bit earlier, um, to sort of see what they were based off of. And it's actually hard to find. Um, A lot of people think they're sort of based off of spirit animals, power animals, um, that sort of thing. And so my Patronus is actually neither of my, it's not um, neither of my power animals. Um, But I do love cats. (laughs) I like big and small cats. Um, and I also really love pets that have interesting markings. I'm such a sucker for, like, dogs and cats that have really cool markings. So I actually think it, it fits me quite well.
2: My family cat, who I grew up with, who, now that I'm back with my parents during COVID, I'm staying with, uh, he has some particular markings that resemble the mustache of a 1930s and 40s uh, fascist leader. And we'll just leave it at that. Is uh, that he is adorable. Carmel is the most adorable animal in the world. Um, but yeah, he's got a Hitler mustache. so That's a thing. Wow. Um, my Patronus is a grass snake. And I was very confused at first because snakes give me the creeps. I can't go in any reptile house anytime we visit a zoo. Just can't do it. it um, but then I was reading more. And so I found... This is not the first time I found it, but in preparation for this episode... Um, or for this, for this panel, um, I found MuggleNet did like a compilation of all the different descriptions of, of Patronuses. And this is where I was like, okay, I get it. Um, so when I'm reading here, misunderstood and often just looking to get on with its day, the common grass snake, I don't know if I'm common, but we'll allow it, uh, alludes to the idea that we are often judged by our outward appearances when in fact, we may bear little other similarities with those we are mistaken for. And I felt that, like, I was like, okay, I still think snakes are, uh, um, but I, I was like, okay. So I've, I've made my peace with it.
0: So with Patronuses, we see uh, Patronuses change in, for certain characters in the books, um, but we also see Patronuses used as a form of communication. So, but it seems that when Patronuses change, it has less to do with like someone's personality. It seems to change because of somebody else. What do we make of that?
2: Well, if if we're if we're sticking with the Patronus being this sense of hope, I would take it to mean that you know something seismic has shifted in your life, and you're now maybe clinging isn't the right word, but clinging on to something else as your kind of North Star for Hope. Right. So if Snape's Patronus for the entirety of his ability to produce one has been a doe for Lily, right? You play that out, that just means he is consistently the only kind of bit of hope he has, you know, looked to and kind of relied on has been Lily. Right. When when Tonks's Patronus shift shifted, right, I think it right, because she was heartbroken. She was hurt. She was looking to a different place. Or hope. Her hope, her perception of, or her, or her view of what was driving her forward in life had shifted. Um, so that's how I interpreted it. Danny. I don't know if you view it any differently or if just being two awesome podcast co-hosts, we are just in sync on this.
1: No, that actually makes sense. It also... Hey. I
2: like <laughs> when we do that. It's fun. <laughs> it
1: I'm also up. brings forth the question of, did Snape have a prior Patronus? Was he able to produce one prior to knowing Lily well he would have been too young I guess I would argue that it
0: probably was always a doe because he probably I think he was like in love with Lily for
1: like ever that seems yeah now that I say that yes I agree (laughs) so okay
0: so then we see them also be used as a form of communication and if we think of that in terms of like mental health you know, um, therapy tends to, you know, be based in the communication of one's feelings of, you know, one's experiences to sort of work through them. Um, so that was also interesting to me that, you know, other uses of the Patronus is not just against Dementors, but it would be used to communicate with others. And maybe that also connects to, what we were saying earlier, where Harry, you know, has found a place um, with others. And, you know, just like in the ministry, he's protecting another group of people. So maybe, you know, it also connects people in a way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it plays into kind of the other thing I like to think about when I think about Harry Potter and mental well-being is this, this repeated concept of, you know pack mentality frankly right like, like you can go off alone but you are not only effective but also fulfilled when you're together right so and through harry yes certainly we see a myriad of times where harry is trying to do the quote-unquote right thing by doing it by himself and not putting others in danger but others come to him and say no like this is this is what we do we, you know, we protect each other
1: it's like the scene with Hermione where she pretty much tells him he's stupid if he thinks he's going without them. Right.
2: right. And then also, I think, you know, another example, because he never gets enough shine, whatever, anyone talks about Harry Potter, is Ron, right? Like, Ron's had enough, and Ron, Ron's off on his own in Deathly Hallows, right? And it's not until he comes back that they're all healed, right? Because then Ron's able to say, I wasn't off living my best life. When I wasn't off, you know, hanging out in Cabo. Right. I was, I was getting berated <laughs> by the family for, you know, I was, I was miserable. It was sad. And, it, and it's this, it's this concept of, we are, thanks Hillary Clinton, we are stronger together. Right. Um, and I, I think that's really powerful. And I think, you know, to the point about paternos commun- as a form of communication, it's, it's one thing to have enough hope and to have that sense of internal kind of optimism driving you forward but there's a whole nother level of transcendence when you're able to spread that and share that with others.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
2: that's the big kind of lesson for me of Harry Potter is that, that, that feeling of, yes, it's great that you yourself can, can, can be optimistic, can have hope, can, can persist against kind of the, the, the darker things in this world that want to pull you down. But it, it's when you're able to live in communion and concert with the people around you where it becomes you know, ex, you know, exponentially more powerful.
0: I definitely agree. And I think also just the visual of, you know, having a fully formed Patronus, like you're automatically not alone against uh, the Dementors.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like when he goes to like pet prongs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. (laughs)
1: We have
2: anything else you want to add? Well, okay. Well, here's one thing. Um, so frequently on our podcast, not frequently every episode on our podcast, uh, we always end with creator shoutouts, which is just our way to give some sort of shine to someone out there in the Potterverse on Instagram who who is either doing a thing that we find cool or um, is is you know spreading light, has cool artwork, whatever it might be. And so why don't we? Why don't we end with some creator shout-outs for, for this fun panel with all the gratitude to Scrum the Villainy for letting us do this. This has been super fun. Um, Definitely. Annie. I'm going to put you on the spot um, as you furiously dig through Instagram. Um, who is your creator shout-out for this fun special panel?
1: Rude. I am going to shout-out because I really like all her stuff lately. Uh, Mariah Araki it's M-O-R-I-A-H-R-A-K-K-I and she her photos are just magical it just every post she makes just makes me happy and I love the work that she does.
0: I have two I'll do uh, Cat Cave Studio who makes incredible pottery Um, I have a mug from her and it's gorgeous and I also I feel like I can't not shout out our all of our friend Paula Unconceivable on Instagram, yes. who just is so wonderful and makes really amazing bows, but also masks right now, which everybody needs and should be wearing.
2: Yeah, um, Paula, we love you. You know we love you. This is not news She's to you. She's
1: literally either. a light in the Harry Potter universe.
2: Literally. So I have I have two as well for this for this panel so first i want to shout out um seeing as we're talking about the west coast here um, i want to shout out amy and Yana um who run the big fat lanyards account and then they each have their own multitude of accounts um, they recently did a harry potter pin live sale they they collect and trade and sell all these super cool pins ranging from pins that cost five dollars to i kid you not one that went for i think six hundred dollars um but I spent honest to goodness seven hours this past Saturday watching a live sale on Instagram Live. Um from 6 PM Eastern and I was up till about 1 130 doing it. Uh it was awesome. My favorite did part. Did you buy was, anything? I did buy some stuff. It's coming in the mail soon. Super psyched. My favorite part was towards the end, towards like hour five, one person, I forget who it was, so I apologize. Um one person commented and said, now that we're in hour five, the weak are starting to drop and only the strong remain. (laughs) It was intense. It was intense. So that was awesome. Uh, Beyond, of course, this one lifestyle, they're both incredible humans who are teachers and, and who bring a lot of happiness and joy and fun to the community. So shouts to y'all. And then my other big shout out for, for today is uh, to our friends over at the, the masterful magical minority. So, um, this is a, a collective of people that kind of started at its core with five amazing individuals. Um, Gerald, who is the Dabber Minister of Magic, Trey, who is I am Black Harry, um, I am not Black Harry, that's his Instagram, he is Black Harry, um, Karina, the Magical Latina, uh, Emana, who's Magical Food Department, and Eliana, who is Elements of Magic. These five people I mean, let me tell you, if you want to talk about continual uplifting and optimism and like the strength of the collective being there for times, good and bad, uh, these people nail it. Um, They are some of the most lovely, just forever optimistic and caring people I've had the pleasure of of meeting and speaking with and getting to know. Um, And so they each, I I just kind of went through, they each have their own Instagram accounts. But beyond that their collective kind of movement that they're starting, you know, the masterful magical minorities has its own Instagram, which is masterful magical minorities and their, their creed, their mission is, you know, one who recognizes, accepts and celebrates people's differences, therefore creating a loving and magical community. And, uh, you know, I I can't say enough good about all five of those people and, and what they're doing for this entire, you know, collective and fandom. So shouts to y'all. Thank you for everything you do.
0: Yeah, it's what Harry Potter is all about. And it's what this community is all about as well.
2: It's also about Quidditch. Harry Potter is also a lot about Quidditch.
0: Facts. Yeah.
2: Well, that's what I got.
0: Well, thank you, everybody who is joined us for this panel. And thank you to Scum and Villainy again for having us. Um, again, my podcast is first years you can find us on instagram and twitter at first years
1: pod or anywhere you listen to podcasts and then steven and i can be found at creating magic podcast and you can also find us anywhere that you will find a podcast amazing thanks guys
2: (laughs) bye everyone